Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 190 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night. It's January 6, 2021. To borrow a phrase, it is a day that will live in infamy. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and, and to help us get through all this, I actually brought what I hope is an uplifting special guest. Say hi, special guest. Hey, guys. It's Karen Vladek. Yay! No, noted law nerd and, and Steve Dragger, Karen, has decided to take a break from dragging me on Twitter um, to come drag me on a podcast that isn't actually our podcast. I will hang out until the first statute is stated. Oh, that's going to be pretty early. <laughs> the, the, yeah. I mean, Section 2384 is going gonna, is gonna to come into this conversation pretty quickly. So, well, we could do 2383 first, but I'll set off of 2384. Uh, it's, a, it's an in loco parentis national security law. Uh, it's, always, it's always kind of a crossover, I guess, now, but, uh, but it's a full-fledged crossover. It's like Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days, all members, not just one of them. I should also warn people, I mean, we are recording this at 9.15 Central Time on Wednesday night. Um, this is not going to be a G-rated episode. Um, and just to kick the ball off, that is because, Bobby, shit is fucked up. Well, let me ask you this, uh, I, or let me just say, I'm on dry January, so despite the hour, I, I'm, I think I'm completely coherent. Are you doing dry January? Uh, I'm not doing dry January, but I am. I don't think either Karen or I have have imbibed this evening because I think we're just too pissed. All right. So if we all sound crazy tonight, it's it's all natural, and not because of it, our it, usual. It, 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 I, I'm not. I'm not crazy. I am so angry. I am. I am so like. I've been angry on the podcast before. I mean, I know there have been one or two episodes, but I just. I'm in the sad stage of grief. I think. Yeah, I'm with you on sad. Um, I'm not. I'm not too sad yet. I I I went to law school with Josh Hawley. I'm still an angry. Uh, I bet you guys were big buds too. Oh, the dear friends. <laughs> um, it is. Uh, it's a really dark day, and um, I'd never thought I'd see anything like this happen. Um, there are many dimensions to it. We did not, listeners. We did not pre-plan. I mean, I know I always say that, but like we really didn't come up with a plan how we're going to talk about it. So this will be a very free-form conversation hitting a bunch of different topics that are implicated by the, by the you know, fiasco is not a strong enough word, by the unmitigated disaster, the, the literally bloody disaster that unfolded as the culmination of many years of almost inevitable culmination of the toying with violence, the baiting of violence, the solicitation, the incitement, the encouragement of political violence in our culture, the sort of thing that many of us were decrying from the moment it seemed real that Donald Trump might become the president and or the candidate. Um, and in so many ways, pushing the Overton window on what you could and should say, what's responsible, winking, nodding, laughing, literally, uh, about violence. It's all outrageous. It's all a deep betrayal of everything we should be standing for as Americans. It's all utterly incompatible with anything conservative, anything liberal, anything progressive, anything democratic, anything. All right. I'm kind of a spent force there, Steve. Jump anything, in. anything American. I mean, any, anything American. I mean, it's, it's, it is, I mean, today is, today is as anathema to what I've been brought up to think our society and our country stands for um, as any day in my lifetime. Um, you know, I don't, I, I mean, my lifetime is relatively shorter than some longer than others as I look at Karen. Um, but I, I just, I mean, I, I don't know if it would have gone differently if, you know, the Republicans hadn't lost control of the Senate last night. I mean, I think, you know, that might've just been the sort of the last tipping point, but I mean, it, the, the tweets the president sent this afternoon, the, what he and Rudy Giuliani and their, you know, enablers said at their rally this morning, I mean, the pictures from the Capitol, I just, I, I almost don't, I mean, I, I know where I want to start. I almost don't know where to start. Cause it's just, it's so overwhelming that this is where we are. Um, yeah, I'm with so, you. So I feel like, I mean, I feel like the best thing we can do as a sort of a, you know, the, the best thing we can do for our listeners is actually talk about sort of what's going to happen from here in a series of steps, like layering them out, right. You know, um, what 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 what's going to happen in response to what happened today, right? What's going to happen? What 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 happened with the response today? What's going to happen in Congress? I mean, as we speak, the Senate has just rejected 
the objections to Arizona's electoral votes to the the Biden elect the Biden electors from Arizona. I think the House is about to do the same. Um, so, Bobby, maybe we should just go. Maybe we should start with like what actually happened today from a legal perspective, and then what we think is going to happen in the coming days and weeks. All right. So we've got a couple of buckets of legal issues. You've got the charges for the. Um, the, the cartoonish avalanche of crimes that were being committed by so many people um, with very, there was both tremendous bravery by hard pressed law enforcement officers on the scene. And also uh, judging from film, I've seen lots and lots of t- tolerance and letting people walk, walk away in ways that, I think it is fair to say would not remotely have been tolerated had this been a different kind of protest and even one that was not doing anything remotely as outrageous as uh, what these people were doing. And and yet almost all of them got to walk right away from it. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I, I think there's going to have to be, I mean, you know, I, I listen, the Capitol police had a really tough day, but I am, you know, there's going to need to be a full fledged investigation into exactly both why they were not ready for this yep. and why there's at least some indication that in some context they were actually not doing anything to stop the protest, the, the protesters, the rioters, the insurrectors from yep. breaching the Capitol. Yeah, that's the fact right. that people in senators and House representatives' offices looking on their computers without a full team swatting in there from the moment that that was yeah. posted online is absolutely nuts. People parading through the Capitol you know, with Confederate flags sitting in the speaker's seat. I mean, that is just, it's really mind boggling some of the images that have come out of today. And so, and so I think, you know, from, from the perspective of what our podcast is at least nominally about, I mean, I want to talk a bit about what might have gone wrong in that context and why I think this is actually, a, you know, why some of what happened today, I think is a symptom of Bobby, the same disease that we talked about a lot in June about the inner jurisdictional quagmire that is DC. Um, Right. That so, you know, it's clear that the Capitol Police did not have enough manpower for what they faced today. I think that's the one that's the one obvious point. The question is, why weren't they ready to be reinforced, um, whether by the U.S. Park Police, the FBI police? uh, You could just about deputize anybody to be a U.S. Marshal and provide federal protective services Uh, somewhere recently. Uniform Secret Service agents since the vice president was, you know, since both the vice president and the vice president elect were in the building. Um, So it it was I mean, you know, I don't like to cuss much and definitely on the show, but it was a complete shit show. Yeah. So and so and so the question is to what extent is the to what extent was that a failure of planning and to what extent was that a willful failure by acting attorney general Rosen by acting secretary of defense Miller and by the White House to actually do what they otherwise would have done were it anything other than the joint session to count the electoral ballots. Yeah. And okay. that's why that's what we need to find out. So we've got we we need to run through uh some of the more interesting not the obvious ones but some of the more interesting uh, potential charges and and the and the people that might or might not be charged, even if they morally deserve it, but not, might not actually be charged. We need to talk about the uh, the National Guard issue and this question of who the D.C. National Guard needed permission from and what the heck took so long with that. There's some interesting issues there. Um, we can talk a little bit maybe about uh, um, potential impacts of pardons and the connection to this. A lot of people wanted us to talk about the 25th Amendment. Um, there's some... Yeah, and, and with 25th Amendment, because I don't know if I'm going to make it all the way to that discussion. I have a question <laughs> from a House staffer that says, has Steve thought about 25th and non-Senate confirmed secretaries? I have. Everybody wants to know the actings. Uh, Do they get yeah. a vote? Yeah. So, so that's why I want to walk through this in, in order, right? So so let's start with what happened today legally, right? And so let's do that from two from two perspectives, Bobby, right? From the federal response authorities and from the criminal liability question. Okay, that's good. So on the federal response side, we spent a lot of time in June talking about the unique role of the DC National Guard. Um, And I don't want to sort of rehash that whole discussion, but here's the DC National Guard in a nutshell. Unlike every other National Guard in the country, including federal territorial guards like in Puerto Rico, the DC National Guard is never under the authority of the local government. Um, at all times, the D.C. National Guard is under the authority of the uh, Department of Defense through the Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of Defense, and the Adjutant General of the D.C. National Guard. Um, what that means in practice is that the mayor of D.C. has no power to order the D.C. National Guard into action. She can only request 
um, their deployment. And the, it's actually ultimately the secretary, or in this case, the acting secretary of defense's call whether to actually do it. Um, the acting secretary had approved earlier this week the deployment of, I believe, Bobby, about 800 D.C. Guard troops, um, but in an unarmed auxiliary support capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think happened today was when it became clear that the Capitol Police were not going to be able to handle what was going on, it was. It took a while to sort of two things happened at once. One, the White House did not act at all proactively. There's reporting that Trump literally dragged his feet right on this. Um, but two, it took a while to actually re I, I, uh, repurpose, retask um, the guard units for the more sort of policing function that they were needed to perform, and that that finally was sorted out by late this afternoon. So the short version is it took you know, DOD a while to get its act together, whether that's because it was just a a logistical cluster, you know what, or whether that was willful um, foot dragging on the part of the White House, I think remains to be seen. There was a lot of speculation during the day when inactivity was occurring on this front that the uh, that a no had been given. And it looks like at this point, the record suggests that that's not actually the case at least not in such stark terms, that if that if there was something untoward going on, it was more in the nature of uh, reacting very slowly to what was in fact a life and death situation, which is itself entirely inexcusable. And, and um, also- what about D.C. police? Why not Why not re- D.C. PD, SWAT teams, et cetera? Before we get to the D.C. police, can I talk a bit about about the, the question of whether the vice president was involved in, in, in the final call out so, of the D.C. card? Right. So that that to me is, is clearly some misunderstanding or misframing of what went on there, because, of course, the vice president is not in the chain of command. Um, it my my understanding is that the uh, vice president had called the acting secretary when this decision was being made and and had agreed in a sort of a policy uh, top cover politics policy way to say, yes, I endorse this. But that doesn't mean he was ever in the chain of command. You know, my, no, my, my understanding actually is that the vice president was basically acting in his capacity as the presiding officer of the joint session, um, in which he has no formal authority, but like the speaker and the majority leader was requesting assistance, right? Right. He, um, he, was, he, was, he was calling as the crime victim. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. And then one last thing before we get to the DC police. Um, late tonight, I've seen reports that Mayor Bowser has requested and various states have agreed to send their own guard troops into DC. Um, and again, back to our discussion from June, this is the weird residual authority of the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, an interstate compact, which is the only place where the mayor of DC has any authority to you know, potentially request other state guard troops. Otherwise, it's up to the federal government. And so what we're seeing is that the mayor is doing what she can um, but we are seeing a, 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 an embarrassing and shameful lack of an aggressive, preemptive federal response, which I guess is entirely um, not surprising, given the circumstances. It, it is it is so shocking that I confess I'm surprised that it's this blatant. I mean, the comparison between what is happening here and what went down this summer in Lafayette Square Park and elsewhere, I mean... I'm speechless. I'm just speechless at that level of, of gross differential treatment. Um, even if these were equivalent provocations, which obviously they were not, they're they're entirely uh, incom- incommensurate. So, yeah, agree with you on that. Okay, now why when when the National Guard isn't on the scene and there's only so many Capitol Police and neither DHS. Or DOJ or anyone else is Which, doing. By the way, had no problem massing massing personnel in June or sending people to Portland, right? I mean, like no, this that's, is- what, that's what I'm saying. Like they they, they had no, you get helicopters, you know, creating downwash on the crowd of peaceful protesters at one instance. No, literally, like you could be walking down Pennsylvania Avenue trying to go to Good Stuff Eatery and cross on the wrong side of the street, and you'll get like tackled by a Secret Service person or the Capitol Police but or the these Park people Police. just like str- are strolling on it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, pictures while they're at it. I think when we're done, we're going to find that there was way too much, um, if not complicity, then at least laxity um, on the part of the Capitol Police and other law enforcement agencies. As for Bobby, as for the DC Police, um, so my understanding is that actually the way that they ended up regaining control of the Capitol was with a heck of a lot of D.C. police officers. Um, Kudos to them. And I'll just say, um, that's great. 
Um, I am very confused as to the legal authority for that, because in theory, the capital is not part of like the, the capital is the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government, not D.C., um, I guess uh, I'm sure no one is going to quibble over the technicalities here. And I'm sure that whatever formal requests had to be made by the relevant members of the Capitol, maybe the sergeant at arms, right, to the D.C. police were made. But that's uh, I cannot recall a, a moment, Bobby, when the D.C. police were the last line of defense for the Capitol. No, and they shouldn't be. It's ridiculous. But I will say I, I'm reasonably confident there will there will turn out to be pre-existing process whereby Capitol Police on appropriate requ- request can legally and properly get that sort of search. It's rare, I mean, if it, not, I, I've never seen it in the, at this scale. Um, one last thing about this before before we move along. Um, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, a lot of folks are saying, hey, look, this is why D.C. needs statehood. Right. And, and I've been on the D.C. statehood bandwagon for a long time. Um, let me just say that without relitigating the D.C. statehood fight, I think what today really drives home is why D.C. needs National Guard autonomy um, and why there's actually no good reason why D.C. should be different from Puerto Rico, right, which are both federal territories subject to exclusive federal sovereignty. Puerto Rico's governor controls the Puerto Rico National Guard, not D.C. And if the concern is, right, that the D.C. National Guard could somehow be co-opted by a mayor adverse to the federal government, that's BS because the Guard can just be federalized. Yeah, agreed. Um, you and I you and I have different views, only in the sense that I think you're for D.C. being fully independent. I'm for folding it into either Maryland or Virginia so as not to compound the small states. Which, which neither Maryland, Virginia, nor D.C. want. Yeah, that, nonetheless, um, we solved the problem of lack of representation without exacerbating our federalism issues on that dimension. But either way... The idea that there's no ability by anyone other than the federal government to uh, to get National Guard presence there makes no sense. So I, I like your solution. In the meantime, give them autonomy. We're re-watching the video right now on TV in the background without sound, and it's actually so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And on the left, so on the right side of the screen that we're watching right now is video from inside the Capitol. Today. On the left side is the House vote on whether to sustain the objection to the Biden Arizona electors, where there are already 49 Republican members of the House who have voted aye. So I, somebody suggested there needs to be a monument of shame. Yep. There need to be a lot of monuments of shame, I think. Um, but I think it's a particularly worthy monument of shame to uh, memorialize the name of anyone who, frankly, who was going to do this anyways, but who's still doing it now in the aftermath of, of the, the nightmare today. Um, so, yeah, might need, a, unfortunately, a large monument for that. Okay, turning our attention to the crimes that were committed, there's yeah, all sorts of low-hanging fruit. There's low-hanging the fruit, but the fun stuff is to talk about um, seditious conspiracy under 18 U.S. Code Section 2384. And the, it is an old chestnut, and it gets it sort of takes up all the oxygen in the room and leads people not to pay enough attention to its twin Section 2383, rebellion or insurrection. It's twin. Did you just refer to a statute by its twin? It's twin. It's sibling. How about it's sibling? <laughs> I like neighbors. Well, how about neighbors since they're next to each other in the U.S. Code? Only they, they are indeed. Would have little pet names for different statutes. This is, this is, the this US is code. see, this is why we need Karen on. Karen is the live or commentary. I'm like, I'm like what? I don't understand what you mean. Do, doesn't everybody have familial labels for their favorite statutes? And, do, and indeed, don't you have favorite statutes like, you know, the Logan Act, seditious conspiracy, misprision of treason? I mean, that's a fun one. 2382, y'all. Take a spin through chapter 115 of Title 18, and it's some. It's some good times. All right. Um, on the U.S. Code. So where do we dive into this, Steve? Um, I, I, maybe one way to do it is to distinguish the relatively easy cases from the fact patterns that would be harder, potentially constitutionally problematic on First Amendment grounds. So in other words, let's, let's talk about people who were engaging in violence at the Capitol in an effort to disrupt the, uh, the execution of the laws today, while also... Uh, seizing, taking, and possessing uh, property of the United States, and using force to accomplish all these things. Why, Steve, I think I accidentally just described uh, most of the elements uh, that are the, if you agree to do those things, you've got a seditious conspiracy, do you not? Oh, I, I, I mean, I, you know that I am actually usually pretty wary about jumping to, the, to this particular chapter of the U.S. Code, because I think we have a tendency to call things 
you know, the T word or other yeah. things. They're not, yeah, we're, not, we're not calling treason, but if I were thinking of a textbook illustration of seditious conspiracy, we saw it this afternoon. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, so I did in lieu of show with, with Kate and Ben earlier. Oh, uh, I did. And in Kate, had, I was a real brief appearance, but I think Kate or somebody said, you know, this textbook seditious conspiracy. And I tried to quibble because I can't help it because I'm a professor. I'm like, well, I mean, strictly speaking, uh, you know, like more like a, an actual, well, maybe it's maybe it's close to the court. I, you know, I tried to distinguish it, like thinking about more organized, more effective, re- full throated rebellion. But then I thought, oh, give me a break. Um, you know, we didn't hesitate to throw this charge at the terrorists in the 1990s when they went after the uh, the various landmarks and tunnels in New York, World Trade Center, et cetera. Um, the statute's pretty straightforward. It's the, the key is not to be thrown off thinking that this is a codification of treason. That's a different kettle of fish. The seditious conspiracy statute requires an agreement, a conspiracy amongst two or more people to do. And then it's with the use of force to do all these different predicate things and at least two of them seem very directly and squarely presented here. And one is preventing, hindering, or delaying the execution of any law of the United States, you know, such as the, the Electoral Accounting Act, um, which was clearly the specific aim of these people when they used force. And um, taking possession, seizing, taking, or possessing any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, as in occupying uh, Congress. So, yeah, I think that they can and should bring down the House on those whom they can show are using force here. Now, what gets tricky is, and Steve, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, would you agree that if you have on camera someone doing anything violent, okay, you got it, that's use of force for purposes of this, but someone who's who's only documented walking the halls and trespassing there uh, you you would have a you would have an issue with proving a use of force element because they may have simply walked in amidst or in the aftermath of the lee of all the violence. What do you think? No, I mean there's there's a lot of case law about what use of force means requires at a minimum. I mean right that you know there's there's I think there's been a whole line of Supreme Court cases in the last few years about what force means in this context. Um, but you know I mean Bobby the whole point of the seditious conspiracy statute is to cast a very broad net. Um, and so, you know, I think if they can, anyone who they can tie to any concrete physical act, right, people who they have on camera breaking glass, shoving Capitol Police officers, right, um, entering offices by force without permission. I mean, I think like that's, you know, I, I, we, we, I, you know we probably won't even get to talk much about the, the, the what was going to be the news of the day, which is the announcement that Merrick Garland's going to be the attorney general, um, okay. you know. I think the Garland Justice Department, you know, if they really want to make examples of some of these guys, because the thing is, there are so many low-level offenses they can throw at these guys. I mean, it is a crime. It is a federal crime to enter the House chamber without permission. Right. Now, there's there's a huge list. Let's be clear. I'm only trying to just focus on, like, the big ticket items that they're yeah. really... But, 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 think, but like you and I talk about so often in terrorism cases, I think federal prosecutors are going to be in this interesting position where they could go for the big, you know, for the big for the kahunas, right, the seditious conspiracy, the insurrection charges, but they'll have such an easy time proving relatively less serious charges that carry pretty stiff penalties of their own that they may not need to. Okay, so this is what I'm driving towards. Um, I agree that for the vast majority, there's going to be a very large number of people who they can prove because they're on camera uh, being in violation of numerous federal laws by walking around and being there. Then there will be the subset that they can document are engaging in violence. Now, as to them, there's both a can you prove seditious conspiracy issue and a should you throw that more loaded term into the mix I actually think that the case here for throwing the loaded the loaded charge, the politically loaded, the, the one that sizzles, seditious conspiracy, is very strong precisely because this was such an outrage on the fabric of our country that you want to bring down the house, as I said before, which means that it really matters uh, whether you can make these charges. And I think the challenge is going to be showing the conspiracy element. Yes, there's loads of these people there. Can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that any particular one was agreeing to engage in the use of force. You know, you've got the circumstances, but every one of them can come into court and say, you know, I agreed to go 
protest. Uh, but then these things kind of went nuts. And on my own, I went in and did these other things. I mean, there's Bobby, there's a heck of a lot of video. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's going to take a, a video of agreement. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Like the force, no problem. Yeah. The force you can show the, the, the actus reus. Okay. Okay. How about this? There's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot. I mean, you know, there are emails, text messages, parlor, you know, parlor posts, whatever those are called, parls. Um, right. I mean, you know, these folks are not exactly good about hiding their criming. Yeah, hiding their crime. Nice. Um, so, so yeah. So for a subset, and of course, the natural thing to do would be to concentrate on anyone that can document as in a leadership role, spurring the violence. Which hopefully they will be able to show that because I don't doubt for a second there's, as you say, a lot of social media evidence of that. What about turning away from those who went in the building? What about the people that, in various leadership ways, spurred them onto this? Let's start with Mister Trial by Combat himself, Giuliani. Calling, making this at the time seemingly bizarre statement in the morning uh, about trial by combat, literally calling for that uh, or using those words, I should say, and then getting this bizarre. result. I thought he was about to challenge somebody to a duel. Yeah, seriously. It was bizarre. Um, my, I'll tell you, my sense is that notwithstanding what actually followed later in the day, I think it'd be pretty hard to make an incitement type prosecution stick if he were prosecuted for the speech he gave this morning what do you think i mean it's it's, it's worthy of a law school exam question um so I, I spent a lot of time today talking to different people about the brandenburg test um right brandenburg versus ohio is still the canonical supreme court discussion of where the first amendment draws the line between protected political speech and incitement um and i want to bobby i want to pull up the actual line from Brandenburg. So I don't want to. I don't want to paraphrase. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. So the Brandenburg. While you're doing that, can I just say that I I added Brandenburg to my syllabus this fall because I wanted to add, bulk up the First Amendment coverage. And at the time, I told the students, I was like, "This is this is a little bit random because there's a million other things I could have added in. I chose this one." Ugh. Um. So Brandenburg, the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state or the federal government, to forbid or prescribe advocacy or the use of force or of law violation, except, and here's the money line, where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. So let me, let, let's start with the second prong. I think the second prong for both Giuliani and Trump is easily satisfied here. I think that in context, right, the notion that their comments were likely to incite imminent lawless action, I think, is, is actually relatively easy to demonstrate. I think the harder lift is the first prong, which is whether the advocacy was directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And, you know, I, I, I mean, to my mind, it absolutely clearly was. But I can understand why folks who aren't as skeptical of Giuliani and Trump and don't think that they're, you know, um, actively enjoying what happened today um, right, would not think that was open and shut. It's funny. I, I, I might have a mirror image uh, view on this. That is, I'm more inclined to say that indeed they, in in their heart of hearts, this was directed. Uh, but I, I think there's a problem. It's all about how finally one calibrates the the probability that there will be a lawless result and that it'll happen within whatever bandwidth of time counts as imminent, um, which is a whole different topic. I think both the probability of getting this result and the likely of it happening within a close enough window in time, the probability is the part I'm kind of hanging up on. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Giuliani, the, pro we're, the probability we're, that Giuliani... We're going down, the, we're going down to the... I, let, me, let me finish. Right. The probability that Giuliani is saying these bizarre, weird things, including the bizarre phrase trial by combat... Um, Crossing the line into prosecutable speech, I think, is a bridge too far, as horrific yeah, yeah. as his intent was, because I think it was his intent to wink, he wink. Didn't he didn't just say trial by combat. He said, we're going to go down there and we're going to, I mean, like, there is so much innuendo in those speeches that I think, even in context, I mean, let me this way. I don't think anyone's prosecuting Giuliani or Trump for incitement, so I don't think this is going to matter. But no, but no, but I think this principle matters. It's worth debating. I, I just don't agree on that. I think Giuliani is a, I think Giuliani is actually a relatively easier case, and I think the only reason why Trump is a harder case is because his words are so vague in the first place that, like, you know, you have to go with the fact that everyone knows what he meant. Yeah, I I guess we're just 
seeing that one differently. I think the intent, the intent is quite strong. I think it's stronger than you were saying, but I think the probability, um, given how strict this test has been interpreted, I just don't see it happening. I, I mean, give, listen, given what they knew about who the protesters were, given what they knew about what the protesters had said they were going to do. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, if I were a prosecutor, I would take that case to a jury, but I'm not, and that's, that's a good thing. Right. Karen's looking like, why, why would you ever be a, you'd be a terrible. Steve the prosecutor. Um, Never I, know. But listen, criminal penalties are not the only penalties out there, right? There are also the penalties that president Trump deserves for his, whether you think criminal or not, certainly unpresidential conduct today. Um, no. Impeach, censure, 25th Amendment, or all of them. Stern, stern admonitions. So, I mean, I, I just have to say, I mean, I am, there has been a, a remarkable uptick in the media chatter, Bobby, tonight, coming out of the White House and the administration about the 25th Amendment. No, um, it's, it's very interesting. There's a lot of, a lot of people, including some significant internal figures like the National Security Advisor, the Deputy National Security Advisor, who, by the way, Matt Pottinger, a very serious figure, unlike some of these other folks, uh, Elaine Chow, there's lots of talk about resignations. Now, to some extent, my reaction to that is the same reaction I saw on a tweet from Chris Krebs about an hour ago, uh, where he said, uh, there, do or do not, there is no consider in, in Yoda-like fashion. All this sort of publicly letting it be known that you're you're very concerned you might just have to quit. Quit or don't quit. Don't don't let it be known that you're thinking about it. Quit or don't quit. Has um, the ever been used? No. I'm sorry. Section four has never been used. Um, section three has been used by presidents going under like anesthesia, right? Like the, mm, you know, right, I, right, right. like Bush when he had what, like a colonoscopy or something. Right, right. That's, that sort of thing is uncontroversial. So, so you've got that, you've got these smoke signals. I think it could be a lot of this is just posturing by people who realize that their continuing association with the administration is. You might say rats jumping off of the sinking ship. Or yeah, or at least wanting to be seen as someone who thought about it. You know, like, oh, I, almost, I almost left. <laughs> Why I almost resigned in protest every day. I, I mean, resigning now. I just I, I well, look as, as I always say. If 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 these people resign because what happened today and the president's response to it was the thing that's intolerable to them, I think on one hand, what this, you're surprised. On the other hand, thank you for acting now because this was intolerable today, and thank you for at least acting now. Um, now, now, part of what I'm sorry. Just, I was going to say, like, but it's all part of this sort of uh, commentariat being very focused, not just sort of in the usual wishful thinking sort of way on 25th Amendment, but there seem to be a growing number of people writing and talking about this in ways that suggest that there's real conversation inside, and this is intertwined with reporting about Trump sort of inwardly spiraling as he has fewer and fewer. Uh, prospects and as the reality that he is not staying in office is starting to settle in and the the criminal liability that looms for him and for family and for his organization and all the rest so the danger level is is ramping up and i think that's what's driving this 25th amendment talk i mean one quote that maggie that, that maggie haber intuited is that trump has quote lost it yeah what does that even good god what does that mean considering the baseline yeah, I don't know. We won't know because while he still has access to the nuclear codes, he is not on social media. Right. He's been right. Uh, Twitter suspended his account for 12 hours, Facebook for 24, Instagram. I mean, it's, Instagram, it's, really yeah, that. it's interesting. That I, it's interesting that they sort of removed the, the field from that. So, so let's talk quickly about sort of the legal mechanics of both impeachment and the 25th Amendment. So I think it's worth quickly going through that. Okay, right? I'm going to leave you guys because it's past my bed. I've had enough. Thank, thank you for allowing me on your esteemed podcast. Bye, Karen. Um, ooh, now it's just us. Now we can talk about Karen. Um, all right, so on the 25th Amendment, right, the, the way Section 4 works is the vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the cabinet, and let's bracket that, you know, does that include actings? We'll come back to that in a second. Um, they send a letter to Congress that says, hey, we don't think the president can discharge his duties. Um, and then that has the effect, right, um, of immediately removing the president from his duties until the president sends his own letter, um, right? Um, and then if the president sends his own letter, um, he's back in office, right? Mm -hmm. Then the vice president and a majority of the cabinet send a second letter, Right. Which is like the the Congress arbitration triggering stage. But what's interesting about the second letter is the timetable. Right. Which is that Congress is supposed to convene within 48 hours. 
to discuss, to settle the matter, but it, it has 21 days to act. And during that period, as long as there was a second letter from the vice president, the vice president's the acting president. Um, Right. The, the idea being that if, that, that if the vice president really was attempting a coup, Congress would quickly repudiate him. Let me ask right? you this. Go back to the. Uh, so first letter goes out. Yeah. The president's caught unawares, hasn't can't preemptively fire these potential signers, sees this, freaks out and then issues his own letter saying, no, I'm perfectly competent, et cetera. And it's paragraph two. I fire everybody except the vice president, whom he's the only one he cannot fire. What do you need for the uh, to put it to Congress at that point? Right. So, so this is where um, um, Brian Colt from Michigan State comes in. So Brian is the world's leading expert on the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Brian has explained, I think, quite persuasively that the Twenty Fifth Amendment is ambiguous about whether acting secretaries count for purposes of the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Um, the one thing I think Brian is adamant about is that they either count for both the numerator and the denominator, or for neither. Right. That that is to say. Um, if, if acting secretaries count, then you need a majority of the secretaries or acting secretaries from all the cabinet departments. But if they don't count, then you need a majority of those departments that have Senate-confirmed secretaries. Um, but so, think, think through this. so, so um, assume Trump literally removes every single one of those trying to remove him. So it's the vice president, and the vice president needs a majority of Whichever body it is, but now everyone who was on board with it before has just been fired peremptorily, and so they can't join him. And you've got a bunch of other folks who either didn't want to sign originally and are against this and already are with Trump, or a bunch of new actings who either count or don't count, but either way, they won't vote for it. In other words, is the 25th Amendment poorly drafted such that the president, as long as they're clever enough to both send their responsive letter and fire everybody at the same time, um, or, or at least do them in sequence. So he sends his letter and then he resumes his powers and has the instant access or action under those powers, fires everyone but the vice president. Doesn't that actually, strictly speaking, prevent the vice president and a majority that he needs to kick the issue over to Congress? It shouldn't be that way, but I'm worried that it does read that way. Well, and it's a pretty good argument, right? It's a pretty good argument for why um, reading the 25th Amendment to include actings might be the better reading, right? Because it would deprive the president of that ability. Except that then he might, you know, secure a bunch of uh, bootlickers. Maybe so, right? But but then, and that brings us to the other remedy available to Congress, which is impeachment. Um, Indeed, and, right, and, right. That That's the takeaway here. Like people, I don't know about holding out over the 25th Amendment. Well, so, so the reason why I think some folks have been really into it today is because it's faster, right? That like once Pence and a majority of the relevant cabinet officers send the letter, stuff happens quickly, right? Whereas impeachment is never fast. Um, but there are reasons why impeachment is, I think, the better option. And um, to be abundantly clear, I mean, I, if, if, I am, if I am adamant about one thing on this podcast, um, I think the House has an absolute obligation to impeach Trump um, and to do it tomorrow. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we both we both were pro impeachment, but, you know, original impeachers. Um, nothing has changed our view on that. But I, I mean, but he's committed. But I he's can't committed. think of any any better reason to do it. I mean, I, I I see two different articles of impeachment. Right, I see one about election interference in which his phone call with Secretary Raffensperger, with uh, uh, Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger, features prominently. Yep. Um, and I see a second about incitement, um, where you don't have to prove that he actually, you know, you don't have to satisfy the Brandenburg test to impeach him for incitement. You can incite him, you can impeach him based upon what he said at the rally and then what he tweeted afterwards. Do you, I don't recall your view on this. Do you, are you in the camp that believes that an article of impeachment must articulate a violation of criminal law? No. Yeah. Okay. So as long as that's not the rule, I don't think it's a hard case. No, but, you uh, but if it is the rule, then it gets a little tricky with Brandenburg. I'm not so sure that's true because in our, it has to Bobby has to articulate a violation of criminal law. It doesn't have to articulate a violation of criminal law for which there's no constitutional defense, right? I mean, so so like there's no right against self incrimination in an impeachment proceeding, right? I mean, because it's not criminal. I just I anyway. I, I don't mean to get. I, don't, I think we're getting into the weeds here. Right. The larger point is that I think it is actually that that. We'll get to the Senate in a second. I think it is imperative that the House impeach Trump for his conduct over the past few days. Um, I, I agree. 
And that's for two reasons, right? One, to set a precedent, yes. but two, because I actually think it's incumbent to force the Senate to vote. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if there are 67 senators to remove Trump, although who knows what's going to happen in the next few days, but I'll bet you there are more than 60. Yeah. Well, it's a different Congress. It's um, a different Congress. And, and the other thing I was going to say is, you know, even for, I mean, let's just be real politic here for a second. Um, if the Senate does vote to remove Trump, first of all, it's for like 10 days, right? Which is like, you know, which is not going to seem like a big deal um, after he's, when he's already a lame duck. But Bobby, second, the Senate can also vote by a majority vote, right? To disqualify Trump from ever holding federal office again. And that's very, very, very important. And I can think of some pretty um, uh, cynical reasons why certain senators, Josh Hawley, um, might actually, you know, (laughs) that's sick. Take Trump off of the playing field for 2020. Oh my God, that's genius. Um, Is the window to do this clearly over when the president's out of the office? What's that? Is the window to take an action that has that lasting effect clearly over on January twentieth, or can you take it up? Can given that there's that lasting effect, can this be an, a thing that gets dragged out and still gets brought to a resolution? Um. So that's a little poorly. The general consensus, right? The general consensus is that. Um, the uh, an impeachment proceeding can drag on till that you can impeach someone after they've left office. And that includes if the impeachment starts before they leave office and you remove them afterwards, especially because, right, you can disqualify them from holding future office. Like there's still a continuum justification. For That's it. the thing that makes it not a, not just but, a. I, I, say, I, I think it is incumbent upon the United States Congress to disqualify Donald Trump from ever holding office in the United States again. Uh, you got my vote. Well, that's one. That's one. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm not elected yet. Although I did appreciate that there were some kind folks suggesting a presidential run. Um, I'm all for it. And uh, as I threatened on Twitter, uh, if elected, I vow, I, I'm telling you, Steve, if I become president of the United States, we're going to keep doing the show and we are not going to increase the production value. The frivolity would probably be better because we can get better guests. Although today was a nice guest. That's true. We're up to 118 Republican members of the House voting to sustain the objection to Arizona's electors. Their names, their names should not be forgotten. Okay, impeachment, amendments. I I mean, listen, I, I, I was furious about people voting to sustain these objections before today. How can you look at what happened this afternoon and still vote to sustain these objections? I how. What message are you sending to the armed insurrectionists who came for you and your staff that you are voting to sustain the very objections that have impelled them to commit armed insurrection? These people may be doing this to advance their own political careers in light of their assessment of their their constituents and their likely primary voters, etc. But the message that they are de facto sending, even if not intentionally so, is stand by. That was the message the president sent before. It got cashed out today. God forbid it happens again. Do we have other topics or do we kind of cover the waterfront here? I mean, we could note the fact that there's a immediately a completely bonkers yet uh, increasingly uh, effective attempt in some circles to try to claim this whole thing was uh, leftist Antifa, uh, uh, protesters posing as maniacs from the far right. Did you see what the indicted attorney general of our state said? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask. I feel like I say that in the show a lot, but I'll ask. What did he, he said, say? He said, those aren't Trump supporters. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, you know, there I was a historical record here. I wish people could see the look on my face right now. They can imagine like, it. I, I never, Bobby, never in my life have I ever thought about running for elected office, right? Today is the only time in my life I've thought about it, if for no other reason than to run against Ted Cruz or Ken Paxton. I'm, I'm thinking of campaign slogans. I'm thinking where, where would Steve, where should Steve go? Attorney General of Texas or send him to Congress? Neither. Absolutely neither. Well, 
I'm outraged by hearing. So, so, so I, I want, I want to sort of do two more, two more little risks before we go. So first, um, here's a scoop from Stephen Hayes um, from the dispatch an hour before Congress reconvened right after all the violence, president Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani left a voicemail for Senator Tommy Tuberville imploring him to delay at promising new information tomorrow. The problem Giuliani left his message on another senator's voicemail. And then one more. Um, my, favorite, my favorite and yours, Jenna Ellis. Um, Jenna Ellis tweeted. Wait, is, that, I, is that the Federalist person? No, that's Molly Hemingway. Jenna Ellis is the Trump lawyer, the, the constitutional attorney, Jenna Ellis ESQ. Um, 93 to 6 in the Senate to ratify the illegal certification in Arizona. The Republican Party is officially over today. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's actually a very yeah. interesting statement. I, I, I quote tweet, I, I said, you're right, but not for the reasons you think. <laughs> so, this, so this is where I wanted to end, Bobby, right? Which is because we'll, we'll save like the Bidens. I mean, there are, there are enormous ramifications for the stuff you and I care about um, for the fact that the Democrats swept the Georgia Senate races. And so I think, you know, next week we can talk about some of the many implications of the fact that Biden will now be able to get whoever he wants right into executive branch posts, that he'll actually probably be able to get a fair amount more legislation through right Congress that, you know, the NDAA now becomes something that Democrats will have a lot more control over next year. Um, let's say that for next week. I want to ask you a question because, you know, I, you have been clear from the get go about your um, abhorrence, right, for what has happened to the Republican Party. Yep. Um, my question for you is, where do we go from here? It's funny. I was I was going to ask you whether you thought. Um, so there, there's there's a great fork in the road, and and you took it, and and he, and he took it um, along one time, if you will. There's the possibility that what some maybe would call establishment Republicans can uh, regain. A su some sufficient degree of control. It's not a binary, but regain some sufficient degree of control over the GOP and and to some substantial extent squeeze out of influence to some sufficient degree this madness. But there's another fork where that's not the case. And so for for those like me who are so horrified and and well, I guess you and I are both so horrified, but for people in my position, one question is, so do you, do you just, do you work within? Do you, do you, do you, if, cause if not, your options are, all right, well, let's have a country that's got um, uh, a party that is adhering to the rule of law, it, certainly at its center of gravity and, but endorses an array of policies, some of which I may like, but many of which I, I won't like. Uh, and then also this terrifying uh, proto-totalitarian movement, which must be defeated at all costs, and so therefore becomes effectively a uniform party deal. Do you do you give up hope? Do you form a third party? Does our system have any realistic path forward for forming a party that is, for example, uh, ec fiscally, economically conservative, uh, conservative perhaps on you know some other traditional Republican issues, but is perhaps libertarian and, and, and more progressive on uh, social issues, personal liberty issues, et cetera. Um, is there room for some sort of centrist party is the big question. Um, you know, every party has to have a symbol. The Republicans have been the elephants. The Democrats have been the donkeys. Uh, Trump and all his enablers like to talk about people like me as rhinos. So should the symbol be rhinoceros? So can, can I can I suggest a different possibility? Yes. So switching back to the to the the original timeline and escaping this quantum madness. No, because I think I mean listen, you know, 123 now House Republicans, you know, are are voting for this nonsense. Um, no, it seems to me that Joe Biden may be the exact right president for this moment. Because even though there is an incredibly powerful and understandingly angry progressive wing of the Democratic Party, there's a president who actually is inclined to work across the aisle with those who will work with him. And 
you know, I don't know if there's, I don't know if Mitch, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have been so horrified by what they've seen today that they're going to caucus with the Democrats. I'm pretty confident that they are, that they would be more willing, at least on some things, to cross the aisle than to join with their crazy colleagues. Oh, I and think, so, yeah, I think functionally you're going to get a lot of, of cross, there's a lot of potential here. At least on like, some issues, like, I'm sure they'll be like, for like for like 62, 63 vote, you know, um, coalitions in the Senate on you know stuff that isn't like hyper right down the line partisan, right? That you know on yeah. on climate change, on COVID, at least after Trump, right? I mean, like like you know, I wonder if I wonder if like this is going to pull the moderate flank of the Republican Senate caucus toward the Democrats. I look. I think actually your examples just now are an interesting test case. So COVID. Totally. Um, certain other things I can imagine many possibilities. Climate change, um, you know, we're talking about like, uh, you know, anti-fracking legislation. Then no, I don't I don't think that's going to be an area where people are going to meet. But there will be plenty of there will be plenty of responsible behavior by by Mitt Romney and others, no doubt about it, including bucking the rest of of their colleagues from time to time. But what, I, what, what I'm really interested in is just what's the long term projection here? Um, is there is there a role to play for some, even if they don't formally break with the GOP, will Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, and, and a handful of others form a de facto center third party that that has a substantial amount of leverage because they can they can bring those extra votes when needed on at least some issues? I don't know. I, I just think that the way our system's set up, both parties institutionally have a profound interest in preventing any third structure to exist at any uh, influential level. So it, it sounds a little pie in the sky to imagine some, whether it's center left, center, center right, whatever it is. I think it'd be great, but I'm not going to hold my breath on it. But I yeah. do think that conservatism's got to go somewhere. What, what what Trumpism is, is not conservatism. I know they're using that label. They've they've corrupted that label, et cetera. But actual ideological kind of traditional conservatism's not just going to disappear. It's got to find some home. Those who actually believe in those principles, libertarianism as well. I don't know. We got a long way to go, though. Yeah, no, and it's already. I mean, you can feel twenty twenty four and the 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 ugliness of it. Watching some people positioning themselves for it, this is not going to be fun. All right, uh, I don't think we're doing frivolity tonight. It's not that there, kind of night. There is nothing frivolous to say about what happened today. Nope. All right. Any parting thoughts? I mean, I say this every episode, but today I really beat it, guys. Stay safe out there. Adios.